0: Okay, so it's cloudy, it's wet, we've got a freeze warning, let's try this again, because I think we need a little bit. Good morning, church. Good morning. morning. Grab your Bibles, please open up to Matthew 18, and get your Bibles ready, you're going to want to have them open, uh, or get your finger ready to scroll a little bit, Uh, because what I want to do as we start this morning is look at our passage in the context of the whole chapter of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is called Jesus' fourth great discourse or teaching in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus here in this teaching teaches on relationships and the Christian community. And this includes what many focus on in this chapter, church discipline, right? Many fixate on that, but we'll study that next week. But more broadly, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to relate with one another, how to be in community with each other. And we see if you just put your eyes down on the whole chapter, we see this theme of relationships in the family of God woven throughout. Jesus' disciples are children. Verse 3. Verse 15, Jesus says we are brothers of each other. In verse 35, we share a heavenly Father. So we're children of God. We're siblings of each other, and we need to know how to live as God's family. Anyone ever had parents who brought you into the room when you were kids or parents who do that now and said, we need to have a talk. Can't we all just get along? Please. Picture this like a family conversation. Jesus bringing in and teaching his family how to get along. So Pastor Jace taught us last week, verses 1 to 4, on the priority of humility. We don't exalt ourselves above each other. This week, We'll study verses 5 to 9. We don't tempt each other. Next week, verses 10 to 20, we pursue each other. And that means we might even correct and help each other. And finally, at the end of this chapter, verses 21 to 35, we forgive each other from the bottom of our hearts. We're a family. But as you know, like any family, we can hurt each other, we can offend each other, we can misunderstand each other, we can put stumbling blocks in front of each other that we trip over, we need help. So here our brother Christ comes to us, his disciples, and encourages us to care for each other, the family. So Our title this morning is Caring About God's Children. Caring About God's Children, and we'll look at verses 5-9. to nine. So please direct your eyes to Holy Scripture and hear what God says in His Word. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. This is the Word of the Lord. And may the Lord bless now the preaching of His Word. These are the words of Jesus, and this is a sobering word for us this morning, church. If you're a parent, you you know the pain when somebody harms your child, when they reject them on the playground, or at school, or when they pick them last for a sport, when they mock them, when they physically hurt them. And likely you feel a a sense of righteous offense toward the wrongdoer and a desire to protect your child in that instance. This is something of what's going on in our passage. God God, the Father, is zealous to protect His children, His people. He cares for His people. That's the main point of these verses, that God cares deeply about His people. And that means we should care deeply about His people as well. Here in our passage, we see Jesus zealous. He's zealous to protect his children and care for his people. And he's calling his disciples to have great concern for their care as well. And here's a a key principle we just got to take away today. That we have a mutual responsibility for each other. We share a responsibility for the well-being of each other. Each of us are sinners. We will sin against each other. If I can predict the future in some way, I can predict that much. We will sin against each other. We will hurt each other's feelings. We will do wrong to each other. And we've got to heed the warning in this passage against habitual sin, against purposeful sin, against unrepentant sin toward each other that can harm ourselves and that can contaminate the whole Christian community. We must take care to care for each other. So, with this, all this in mind, we're going to look at these two warnings that Jesus gives us and think about the two ways that He's calling us to care for God's people, to care about God's people. So, two points this morning. First, care about others' holiness. We see this in verses 5 to 7. We are to care about others' holiness. So, look again at verses 5 to 6 with me. This is Jesus speaking. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus gives us here something like a proverb, a promise and a warning, a promise to those who receive or who welcome his children and a warning to those who would reject or even cause his children to be tempted to sin. Severe punishment for them. And here's how this, all this connects to what we, what we learned last week in verses 1-4. to four. Remember, we, we learned about true greatness looks like being humble. Not exalting ourselves above each other. And here Jesus moves on to say, hey, if you want to be humble, if you want to be truly great, your humility is displayed in how you treat the other humble people. How you treat other Christians. How you treat other people who have humbled themselves. How you treat one another. Now, if we've been a Christian for any amount of time, we know the priority of caring about our own holiness, right? Putting off our own sin. But what we've got to get this morning also is that we've got to live out this other principle that we are to be concerned about the holiness and the purity, the righteousness of everyone else, of other Christians. We're not believers on an island, Right? But when we align ourselves with Christ, we also align ourselves with his family. You ever heard about this? Maybe when you were a young couple, maybe you've said this to a young couple before. When you want to marry someone, just remember, you're not only marrying them, but you're also marrying their what? They're marrying their family. Right? True? Like theologically, maybe a little not, not so much true, but you get the point. It's, there's a lot of truth to that statement. There's nothing questionable here though. That When we're united with Christ, we are united with His family. You get the family thrown in too. You get Christ's family. One body and we're called to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because the Father called us into this family. The Son gave His life, His blood for this family. And the Spirit is the one who unites this family in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4. That's the Gospel connection. That's the Trinitarian connection. We are responsible for each other's holiness because we are knit together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the argument of independence and autonomy, that we, what we do doesn't affect other people, that we're not accountable for what they do because of what we did, that's more from the world than the Bible. Personal responsibility, yes, we are responsible for what we do, but we got to get the fact that we are also responsible for how we relate, how we treat other people, and how we might even cause them to sin as well. Because what we do and don't do has effect on others. So Jesus is saying we have a responsibility to protect one another. And he teaches us two ways specifically here that we are to protect and care for each other. First, we're supposed to receive the little ones, and second, we are to refuse to be a stumbling block. So let's think about these. First, we're supposed to receive the little ones in Jesus' name. We see this in verse five. Who are the little ones? Who are the children? Many have looked at this passage and they think of Jesus as children, Jesus as little ones. So we got to receive the little ones—the two-year-olds and the five-year-olds and the ten-year-olds. Right? We got to receive the children. And don't you ever dare tempt a child or cause a child to sin, right? There's truth in that. But as we learned last week, when Jesus uses the word children here, he's not just talking about literal children or little ones. He's talking about everyone who has humbled themselves like a child. He's talking about true believers. He's talking about every one of his disciples, and this includes includes literal, literal children, children who are sitting here listening right now, Jesus welcomes you. Jesus says, come to me. And so we welcome you. And I think it's so glad that you're sitting here this morning. You're listening to God's Word. Literal children, I think Jesus is talking about them as well. Church, I think He's also talking about little ones in general, especially that includes Christians who are little. Maybe little in the world's eyes. Maybe little in our eyes. The ones who are weak, who are slow, who are going to be picked last, who might be ignored, who might be marginalized or outcast. What we are to do is to receive them. Or another translation says to welcome them. Verse 5, we are to welcome others in Jesus' name. Why? Because they're brothers and sisters. We're united to them in Jesus. And when we do that, here's the incredible thing. When we do that, when we welcome every Christian who walks through these doors or into our home or we interact with, we are welcoming Jesus Christ Himself in that moment. That's what Jesus says. You are welcoming Jesus when you welcome His children. And you are following Jesus. And in turn, Jesus says when you reject another Christian... When you ignore another believer, when you put down another believer, when you tempt another believer to sin, you are rejecting Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said something similar Matthew 10. We'll see him say the little ones again. Verse 40 says this, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. In verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because He is a disciple, truly I say to you, He will by no means lose His reward. So in receiving little ones, we extend ourselves for their good. Everyone. The poor, the weak, the disagreeable. The Christians we don't get along with so much or we think are a little immature that we're tempted to judge the poor. Not we don't welcome them in a haughty way. Like, a, I'm, a, yeah, I'm called to welcome them. I'm holier than they are, but I'll still welcome them. I'll have a conversation with them because that's what I'm supposed to do. No, we welcome them with genuine love that looks like, I love you because though you're a sinner and I see you sin, Jesus died for you and Jesus welcomes you. Jesus gave his life for you and he's united with you. Just like I'm a sinner and I see my sin. And you know what? Jesus died for my sin in the same way. And he's united with me. Before the cross, brothers and sisters, before the cross, we're all equal. We are all equal in our sin before the cross. We all need a Savior. So when we have that response, motivated by the cross, motivated by the gospel, that's the gospel at work that says, I don't care who you are. are you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? You are welcome in my home. You are welcome in this church. Come and fellowship with me. Romans 15.7 says, Therefore, welcome one another. Why? As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we are not to ever reject someone Christ has welcomed, but we are to give ourselves, to receive and serve the little ones, the weak, the lowly, as Christ has welcomed we little ones, the weak, the lowly, the needy as you do that be encouraged church you are welcoming christ and he is pleased as you do that another specific application of all this is in the way we show hospitality to each other as a church to other believers first peter 4 9 says show hospitality to one another without grumbling i love that this verse is in our bibles Show hospitality without grumbling. How many times are we tempted to show hospitality with grumbling? Like, the house isn't clean enough. We can't have people over here tonight. I, I wanted to watch the football game. Man, it's a Monday night. I wanted to watch that game. All right, wait, you're inviting the Johnsons over? The Johnsons have seven kids. And you know how they don't clean up after themselves, which means we're going to be up to 11 o'clock cleaning up their toys. Ah. Where are we going to get all the food to feed seven kids? Man. Or, you ever said this? Your spouse or your family says, hey, we're having so-and-so over tonight. And you're like, ah, I just wanted a night where I was going to do nothing. Ah, do we really have to? Okay, well, yeah, we're supposed to be hospitable, but I'm going to grumble as we do it. First Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another Without grumbling. I think he says that because we know we're tempted to grumble sometimes when we open up our homes. Man, I grumble this way. Jesus calls us in our passage to hospitality. That looks like on Sunday mornings, we welcome anybody who walks through the door. We welcome them genuinely from our hearts. I think we do this well, church. But not just on Sunday mornings, I think specifically we welcome up people into our homes into our busy schedules, into the to have a meal that we're already making and eating and say, why don't you have this same meal with us? We'll just throw some more water in the soup and we'll water it down a little bit so we can feed more people. Come on over here tonight. We welcome you. And I think specifically that means visitors to this church. It means new members who are now committed to this church, trying to get to know people. Or the young adults... And the singles in this church, what a ministry that is when you open up your home to them and you say, hey, have a meal, get to know us, because I want to get to know, I care about you. I want to learn from you and I want to care for you. Or teens, teens on a Sunday or at a parent youth gathering, not just hanging out with your friends, but going over to somebody you can just tell, they're in the corner, no one's talking to them and said, hey, why don't you come over and fellowship with us? Why don't you go hang out with us for a little bit? That's hospitality. That's welcoming other Christians. And we are to receive, church, all of Christ's disciples. Secondly, we are to refuse to be a stumbling block. Jesus says we will refuse to be a stumbling block. We see that in verses 6 to 7. So look down at your passage again. You may notice this. Verse 6 to 9 are all held together. By this concept of stumbling block, or in your in, in the ESV, causing someone to sin or tempting them to sin, this word in Greek scandalon shows up in six different times in different forms, and the word means to tempt to sin, or more literally to cause to stumble, to put an obstacle up, to put us up a stumbling block, and refer to the picture a trap, and it can refer to that little stick that holds up the trap when you're trying to catch an animal. What this this causing the sin, causing the stumble refers to. So, what happens when you put up a trap that's held up by a stick, and an animal bumps that stick? Kids, what happens when that stick gets bumped? I'm about to see it smush, smash, trap closed. Or, or picture you're running a race and you get out ahead, and you look behind you, and you just conveniently have this little block in your pocket. And you turn, and you plop it down, and you, it's a stumbling block. You're putting up to trip others behind you who are just trying to run the race. And you're putting up a stumbling block. That's what this concept is. Jesus says, don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a scandalon. Why? This is where we get the word scandal. See that there? Because stumbling blocks are serious and create scandals that disrupt and wreak havoc in the Christian community. So Jesus says, don't be a stumbling block. Here's a problem. We We are aware of how threats can come in from the outside, from the world, through false teachings, from the people out there that we try to protect ourselves from. But what Jesus is getting at is that those same threats can come from within the Christian community, from within believers. When the ways of the world infiltrate our thoughts and our words and our actions how does this happen how, how can a christian offend another christian and cause him to sin john calvin says he, he puts it this way if, if, if any man through our fault either stumbles or is drawn aside from the right course or retarded in it we are said to offend him So we offend other Christians when we cause them to stumble, when we draw them away from following Jesus Christ, or we somehow slow down their Christian walk. That can happen in at least three different ways. We can do that directly. Think of of Eve giving Adam the apple. Eat this apple. That's a direct way we can tempt somebody to sin. Do this. I know it's a sin, but do it anyway. We can do it indirectly. At times, or you could say passively, like remember the golden calf was being made and Aaron just kind of says he was standing around just watching people do it. He says, it just popped up. The people just did it. I couldn't stop them. It's, it's passive. It's indirect. We're still leading people. He's a leader. He's supposed to do something about it. He's not doing anything about it. He's being passive. We can do it indirectly, passively. Or it can show up by our, our Lastly, in our example, when people see us, and they're tempted to do the same thing when we abuse our Christian liberty, when we when we lead the weak to sin against their conscience. Romans 14 to 15. Great application this week is to read that those two passages, those two chapters, when we abuse our Christian liberty and lead others into sin, especially the weak, perhaps especially the younger. And there are serious consequences for being a stumbling block. Our behavior. Our words can entice someone towards sin, can push someone towards sin, and even even lead another Christian to fall away from Christ to apostasy and I say, another Christian, perhaps they never followed Christ, and yet your sin causes them to reject Christ forever, to be out of the race altogether, unless we say, well, not I. We must remember Jesus' word, verse 6, whoever. Whoever covers a lot of people, covers every single one of us. And the fact is that there is the potential of anyone becoming a stumbling block to another Christian. And so we've got to take that to heart. We've got to realize that there is a serious danger for being a stumbling block. Jesus says, I mean, just look at this image. Jesus says it would be better for that person to die by having a millstone tied around their neck and being drowned than cause another to stumble. This is vivid imagery. I tell my boys when they're listening to a sermon, draw a picture about what you hear the pastor saying. Some of these images Jesus uses, these are pretty vivid images to use. And Jesus is using them with a child standing right next to Him. Tie a millstone and throw him in the sea. Why? Because He's not coming back up he's going to die and be drowned in the sea. And these aren't just like these millstones that that women would push to crush grain. These are giant millstones that it takes a donkey to rotate around and crush the grain. And he's saying, pick that thing up, put it around your neck, throw that person into the sea if they would cause another Christian to sin. This would be terrifying to a Jew who says, wait, I'm going to be buried under the sea And I'm never actually going to get a physical burial. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but that would be better than you continuing to cause other people to sin. And facing the, you know what's worse than that? Facing eternal fire. God's wrath forevermore. And he goes on in verse 7 to pronounce a woe. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. The woe, judgment to the world, the source of all this sin. But woe to us, woe to any Christian, when we align ourselves with the world and we cause another Christian to sin. You see, when we cause another Christian to sin, we become like the world's personal agents, doing what the world would have us to do. Jesus says temptation in a fallen world is necessary. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. But Christians are still held responsible when they choose to lead others into sin. And Jesus doesn't mince words. This is serious. So it's a moment for us when we get hit with a passage like this. It's a moment for us, covenant of grace, to look at ourselves. This is a moment of self-examination. How might we, might, how might we be leading other people, other Christians, to stumble? What obstacles might we be putting up? What traps might we be setting up to other believers? Let's, give a, let's think about a few of these. Kids in the room, children. It could look like when you go to your sibling and say, why don't you take that treat? Mom and dad aren't looking. Let's jump on the bed. Mom and dad say, don't jump on the bed. They're downstairs. They can't hear us. Let's jump on the bed. Or playing on their phone or watching a movie that you know that you're not supposed to do. It looks like the teen who convinces his friend to go to a party or to go watch a movie with explicit concepts, and he says, no one's ever going to know. It looks like the young man who entices, who draws a young woman into physical or sexual sin. And it could also look like the young woman who entices men into sin by the way she dresses, or by the way she behaves. Young men are responsible for what they do with their eyes, right? But young women, and we're not talking about rules here and length of skirts, all that kind of stuff. Young women, through the attitudes in their hearts, can entice other men to sin. And we got to get this. We are responsible for each other. So don't ever say, well, hey... It's, it's not me. It's just the way I dress or the way I behave. Young women can entice young men to sin in the way they their attitude and their behavior. This can look like leaders in the church or parents, leaders in the home, giving over to false teaching or teaching legalism, making demands and commands outside of Scripture, but applying them and saying, this is what you've got to do in the home or in the church. Church, it, it, it can look like this that awful sin of of gossip of slander of insulting others behind their backs intentionally or not when we tear apart someone else's reputation when we tear them down and you know what happens when we do that in front of somebody else somebody else got to make a decision do i keep on listening to this i don't know if i should listen to this but i am listening to it they're giving over, they're indulging, their, repu- their, their picture of the other person's reputation is going down by what they're hearing, and they're tempted then to go do the same, to pass on that word or go speak of others in the same way. So that the sin of gossip can spread and entice and draw others into sin. It can look like the person who is anxious or fearful or worrying just all the time. And when you talk to them, you just feel like, man, yeah. I'm feeling more anxious and worried and fearful. I feel like I'm drawn down into despair. And you walk away from the conversation, not built up, but man, I, I just feel drained. I feel like fearful all of a sudden. I don't feel like I have faith anymore. Man, and you know what happens? You walk over to somebody else and you just carry that with you and you drag them down too. Well, just lastly, it's, it's that sin of pride that Jace talked about last week. I think specifically Jesus would highlight that. He talked about it in verses 1 through 4. He's going to say it again in verse 10. When we despise, or we avoid, or we judge, or we ignore, or we put down the weak and the immature, there are many others we could highlight. But the point is what are ways that you might be tempted to be a stumbling block to other Christians? It's a call to examination. Let's examine our words, our actions toward believers in this church. To pastors, to family, to the weak Christians, is our heart to go to them and to build them up? Like leave that conversation with them being built up. Call to be a fly in the wall at your home or in this church. Watch yourself talk and interact with other believers. Are there ways we're being obstacles? J.C. Riles says it's not enough that we wish to do good in this world. Are we quite sure that we aren't doing harm? We may op- not, we may not openly persecute Christ's servants, but are there none that we are injuring by our ways and our example? Good question to ask ourselves. Hear me, hear me now, though. Don't start confessing sins that you don't feel convicted of. Examine yourself And you may say with the psalmist, I'm blameless before God. I have kept myself from sin. And if that's the case, praise God for His grace in your life. That's His work in your life. Give Him the credit for that and ask that He continues to give Him more grace. To continue to keep yourself from this sin. But what happens if we find that there are areas? Yeah, man, I think indirectly, directly, what are all those examples? I am a stumbling block at this point to my spouse, to my friend, to my neighbor, to my co-worker to other people in this church what do we do we walk the path of humility of repentance we we'll receive more grace what james 4 teaches us he gives more grace therefore it says god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble so submit yourselves therefore to god resist the devil he will flee from you draw near to god he will draw near to you and in humility we receive forgiveness and grace through the blood of jesus christ we walk the path of humility. Remember Jesus said in verse 7, it's necessary that temptations come. Why is it necessary, Jesus, that temptations come? Because through temptations, His grace is revealed. When we're tempted and, we, and somehow we say, no, I'm going to have self-control. I'm going to follow Jesus today. That's His grace at work. And when we're tempted to tempt others and we do we give in to sin. We tempt another Christian. We go back to the cross. And we say, yeah, I fell short again. But Jesus died for that sin. And even this stumbling reminds me that I need a Savior and I have a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And how He overcame even that evil and He's going to turn that evil into good. And that's what you do. You rehearse that over and over again and you receive forgiveness. Hallelujah. That Jesus will forgive you in that moment. We walk in obedience, and we turn to freshly caring about others' holiness as Jesus cares for others' holiness. Second point, care about your holiness, and this will be much more brief. Care about your holiness, verses 8 to 9. So look at verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus turns here from talking about sin out there to sin in here. Sin in our own hearts. And he says we should care about it deeply. How? By removing sin in our lives. We are to remove sin in our lives. And again, kids, here's another picture to draw. Here's another vivid imagery. Cut off your limbs cut off your hands, gouge out your eyes, cut off your feet to avoid temptation. You might remember this back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He said something similar. Talking about adultery and lust. But here his focus is different. Remember, his focus is on the community and relationships. So here's the connection to what he just said. He just said, don't cause other people to sin. Now he's talking about your own sin. What's the connection, Jesus? What's going on here? He's saying we must be vigilant not only about public sins, Sins we commit to other Christians, but about private sins. About sins in our own heart. Because our private sins that are not checked, left unchecked, are going to become public. And they're going to eventually affect other Christians. Sins in the dark become sins out in the open. And Jesus is saying, before we start pointing fingers and condemning others to say, yeah, those are the ones who are tempting other people to sin. Those are the ones who are tearing people down. Those are the ones who are stumbling blocks. Look at ourselves and be vigilant because the sins that divide families and churches and friends, they're just first planted and they're grown and they're nurtured in our own hearts. And So Jesus calls us to take radical steps. To care about our holiness, to be zealous about removing sin in our life, so that we protect ourselves and others. Why so radical, Jesus? Because the danger is eternal, and we cannot ever remain casual about our sin. So Jesus is Jesus is is serious. It's it's, it's right here in the text. There is eternal fire that is the destination of those who willingly give themselves over to sin. And their repentance is either no repentance or half repentance, which is no repentance. And it reveals that they were never following Jesus at all. And on the last day, they will get their just reward. Eternal fire. Not just annihilation. Eternal fire. It's another vivid image that's meant to hit us between the eyes, to shake us up. The the great theologian Augustine famously, he wrote a, a book called The Confessions. And early in the book... He's a 19-year-old, and he wrote this famous prayer. He said, Lord, make me chaste, which is sexually pure. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Thank God Augustine grew in his understanding of repentance. But here as a 19-year-old, he summed up how many of us can view sin like, I want to put it off. I want to change, but not yet. It's just not so bad. I'm, I'm getting some pleasure out of it. And it's really not affecting me or others so much. It's half repentance, which is no repentance, which if becomes a habit and a pattern, leads to eternal fire. So Jesus uses hyperbole here. He says, cut it off, tear it out, gouge it out. We're not actually called to amputation, not an application of this message. But don't just dismiss this. Oh, yeah, Jesus isn't talking about cutting off my hand. i dismiss that language. Don't dismiss it. We are called to some kind of amputation. We're called to spiritual amputation, spiritual surgery. That means no passivity or contentment with sin, but a serious, vigilant, zealous approach. Like a doctor who sees a tumor growing in somebody and doesn't say, let's see what happens. Let's see how it's going to grow. Let's see how it's going to spread. Let's just look at it for a little while. Then maybe we'll get around to doing something. No, if he can, the doctor's going to say, here's my advice, let's cut this thing out. Let's get rid of it. I don't care how it's going to spread. I don't want it to spread. Let's get this thing out of there. The Puritan Thomas Watson talks about repentance this way. He says, repentance is a grace of God's spirit. So something God does, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. See that connection? inwardly humbled like yeah i sinned and visibly reformed you got to have both no flirting with sin no saying yeah but not yet no putting off change but being humbled and then putting off sin and then notice here jesus doesn't get specific about and here's the 10 sins that you're supposed to put off he doesn't get specific he says hand he says foot he says eye why because i kind of like my hand and i kind of like my foot my eye these are necessary body parts in many ways, but they can lead to a whole lot of sin. And our eternal destination has so much more value than our eyes and our hands and our feet. So church, as we think about applying this word, which is what we should be doing. We, we're hearing the word. We're about to be done hearing this word. we are going to do with the word? How are we going to be doers of the word? Let's be, what, 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 what's just frame this how Jesus does. How does your hand, how does your foot, how does your eye cause you to sin? What are the ways? And from there, what are the particular areas in which you are stumbling or tempted to stumble? So what are the ways? What are the areas? What are the situations? What are the opportunities? And third, what are you going to do about it? What steps are you going to take? What is Jesus calling you to do with how you use your hands, with your hobbies, with your interests, with how you use your feet, the places you go? With what you look at with your eyes on your phone, your TV, on the beach, Jesus is saying some of us are better disciples if we're half blind or maimed. If it keeps us from sin and striving for holiness, that may mean that some of us give up certain things that other people don't, or avoid certain things that other people don't. And teens and young adults, oh my, does this apply? Be willing to give up the world. To be mocked. To be ridiculed. To gain your soul. And it may feel rigid. Man, like we're missing out. We've got to look past what we're giving up to what we're gaining. Got to look past what we're giving up to what we're gaining. What we're losing to what we're gaining. what Charles Spurgeon says, he, I love how he puts this, he says, better to miss culture through rigid puritanism than to gain all the polish and accomplishments of this age at the expense of our spiritual health. Though at our entrance into the divine life, we should seem to have been largely losers by renouncing habits or possessions which we felt bound to quit, yet we shall be real gainers. And that makes all the difference. may feel like losing at times, but you know it's going to be a tremendous gain in the long run. The reality is that following Jesus is hard and it hurts, And it can feel like losing. And the life of a disciple takes work and can produce a lot of holy sweat in our lives. But here's the encouragement. Jesus promises reward for His children. You see that? Verse 9, He says, the path of holiness. Here's the gain. You're going to enter into eternal life. If you want to underline a word here, underline that one. Life. Those who give their lives now to Jesus daily receive life eternal. And so as we remain vigilant against the world, against the devil's lies, against the sin in our hearts, let's keep our eyes glued on the promise from Jesus our Master. The one who died for the sins that we fight. The one who rose from the grave to defeat that sin and give you power through the Spirit to overcome it. The one who strengthens you in the fight that is pleasing to him. The one who cares about you so much that he didn't just leave you in your sin, but he he gave you the Spirit to overcome it and he calls you, he urges you to walk the path of life. The one who who has walked it, the path of holiness, pleasing other people who were not the best people to please, but pleasing them anyway. Who endured ridicule and mockery and who nailed our sins to that cross that we might live eternal and he was exalted and he says walk that same path and follow me and so church in your struggle against sin and to be holy don't grow weary or faint-hearted let's land there don't grow weary or faint-hearted Here's this encouragement from hebrews 12 therefore lift your drooping hands strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed and strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And with that hope for God's children, saved by grace, but taking up our crosses and striving for holiness, but oh, how rich we are. What a beautiful inheritance we have. We will see the Lord when it's all done. With that guarantee fixed in our minds, let's go before the Lord. Let's pray. Let's strive for holiness. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, what a, what a gift that you do not just leave us here, but you are faithful to us. Even when we are faithless, you are faithful. And one day, after this long road is over, after this, this journey that can be so hard and feel like losing at times, Lord, we will see you. And it will, be, it will all be worth it. So Lord, build our faith. Give us encouragement. Help us in this this fight. If you've identified specific things in our hearts, help us to be doers of your word. Repent and walk the path of humility. And Lord, we we long to see you and hear well done and good and faithful servants. So continue that work in our lives. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.